0: Welcome to Hollywood Obsessed with Tony Muros, a podcast that celebrates our endless fascination with the iconic people, locations, and history of the entertainment capital of the world. If you're as obsessed with Hollywood as Tony is, or would like to be, get ready to enjoy another exciting, brand new episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Now, here's your host, Tony Muros. Hello, friends.
1: This is your host, Tony Muros, speaking to you from the heart of Tinseltown. In this episode of Hollywood Obsessed, I'm excited to be speaking with actor Perry King, who's best known for the role of Cody Allen on the hit 1980s TV detective series, Riptide. Throughout his 50-year career, he starred in over 85 films, TV shows, and miniseries. After graduating from Yale with a B.A. in theater, he headed for New York with a scholarship from the Juilliard School, where he studied with the legendary John Houseman. He made his film debut in the 1972 film Slaughterhouse-Five. After that, he appeared in dozens of feature films throughout the 1970s, including The Possession of Joel Delaney with Shirley MacLaine, The Lords of Flatbush with Sylvester Stallone, Andy Warhol's Bad with Carol Baker, and Lipstick with Margot and Mariel Hemingway. He also played romantic leads in countless TV movies and miniseries like Captains and the Kings with Jane Seymour and The Last Convertible with Deborah Raffin. In 1984, he was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for his role in the movie The Hasty Heart. That same year, he landed the role of Cody Allen on the hit TV series Riptide, which he starred on for three seasons. After the series ended, he went on to play the role of Haley Armstrong on the hit Fox primetime soap Melrose Place, as well as the TV series Titans with Yasmine Bleeth, and he played the President of the United States in the 2004 disaster film The Day After Tomorrow. His most recent project was the independent film, The Divide, in which he directed and played the lead role, and was the winner of 14 Film Festival Awards. These days, Perry focuses on raising money and awareness for Olive Crest Homes for Abused Children as their national spokesperson. He's also a director for the American Motorcyclist Association, and now he's here with me today to tell me all about it. So let's not waste any more time and get this conversation started. Hello, Perry. Thank you so much for being my guest. I'm Hollywood
2: Obsessed. Great to be here. Thank you. How are you today? I'm old. Um, <laughs> that's the, I'm 75 now. When you wake up in the morning, the first thing that you think of is, oh my God, I feel old. You know, I read a quote recently. I don't know the man, Clint Eastwood. I, I would love to know him, but I don't know him. But I read a quote by him that I love so much. Somebody said, apparently to him, they said, how do you How do you do this? You're 93 or whatever. I think that's right. Yeah. You're always doing all this stuff and it's fantastic. How do you do it at your age? And he said, well, you get up in the morning and you don't let the old man out. (laughs) Isn't that great? I, every morning I think, don't let the old man out. Listen to Clint Eastwood. Don't let him out. You know, Don't, don't let if you if you ache, everything I've got hurts. Uh, every part of me, I figure, well, it doesn't hurt. It probably doesn't work anymore. So it's good. That it <laughs> well, I think it works still. I hope, Perry. Um, <laughs> yeah, some of it. And some. De- I have one pain. One Only one at any given time, really. But it moves around all over the place. One day, my knee will hurt. The next day, my knee's fine, but my elbow hurts or my head hurts or my foot hurts. So it's very weird. This business (laughs) of getting old is very strange. Very strange. You feel like you really, honestly, I think most old people feel this way. I feel like I'm still 28, but I had a really bad night last night. (laughs) I'm
1: suffering. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on the podcast. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, you were everywhere. You were in so many movies and TV shows. I swear, I remember as a you were like the matinee idol of the golden age of Hollywood, like that chiseled face, and you were always running, and you were with the starlets, and you were hugging and kissing all these women. And I remember it so like it was yesterday. What stands out most for you when you think back
2: on all those years? Oh, I'll tell you exactly what what I think. The moment I remember... Any of those decades where I was doing a lot of stuff and I just feel so lucky, so incredibly lucky that I mean, because it's it's frankly, it's largely luck. I mean, there's no explanation for why you work or why you don't. I Some of the best actors I've ever done in my life never work. They never get a chance because I don't know why they don't. And I know some people, we all do, I would not mention names, but we all know a few people that work all the time. And you think, why is this person working? They're terrible. Why Why on earth are, they, are we forced to watch this person all the time? So it made, I just feel very lucky that I got to do what I do. And particularly these days with what the strike is about, the actors strike and the writers strike AI. And mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems to me we're in a, an incredible period of transition for okay. a show business and for everything, probably. Yeah. I mean and it's as sig- I think it's as
1: it's a significant, I believe, as significant as going from silence to talkies,
2: because it's a totally different technology, right? I, I would actually go further. I would say it's as significant as going from no movies to the first movies. Mm. The okay. first movie, the first movie ever was that. Uh, I think it was called the Great Train Robbery or something. Mm-hmm. You probably know it was like 1903 or 04. It ends with a guy pointing a, a pistol right at the camera and firing it. And right. at the time, people who saw that, who had never seen movies, it's not because they were stupid or something. They just never seen this technology before, and they all ran screaming from the film from the room when he fired his pistol because they didn't know that it wasn't real. How sure. could? They? And I think that that's what we're entering, a period as that's that big. But of course, nobody knows. That's the thing. It's totally unknown where it's going. All I'm sure of is that pretty much everything we think we know about show business is going to change. Yeah, Probably pretty much everything we think we know about life, daily life is going to change with AI. It's all going to be, and it's going to be probably the way things always are with great transitions. There's going to be a lot of good. And a lot of bad to it. Yeah. All together. And nobody has a clue. Well, it's amazing how movies change people, affect
1: people. The reason why this podcast is called Hollywood Obsessed is because when I was young and I saw these images on my TV or whatever, it impressed me so much that it changed my focus. Like, that's, I always was into that. I want to know what more about that. And for you, when you were growing up, you're from Ohio, right? Yes. Did you have a similar thing where... You saw an actor, or you saw a movie that really affected you. How did you get the
2: acting book? Oh, absolutely! I lived for them. That was everything. My whole life was about going to the movies. And and where I grew up in Ohio, I had a, a very nice upbringing, a very very peaceful and very loving family. Uh, but nonetheless, I didn't feel at home. I didn't feel like I fit in where I was at all. And uh, there was a movie theater up the street from where my house was in Alliance, Ohio uh, and, uh, and I would gather my money together as best I could doing chores or whatever. And then I'd go to that movie theater on a Saturday afternoon, buy a ticket and not leave that theater until like nine or 10 at night, you know, just sit there and eat popcorn and candy. And little <laughs> kid. And I would drink in Westerns was a major part of what they showed. And also biblical epics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Victor mature and Eddie Lamar, I think it was maybe. And, in in some kind of biblical epic epic I remember
1: oh Samson and Delilah right? that was Samson and
2: Delilah yes Samson and Delilah I mean that kind of movie is what I I just be lost in those films and my dad who was a doctor his father had been a doctor before him and uh my dad really didn't have any choice about being a doctor his father basically said you're going to be a doctor too and that was it <laughs> different world you know yeah. and uh When I was a kid, my father was so great. He wanted, of course, his children to become doctors too, but he never told us that. What he said to me was some of the best advice I ever got in my whole life. And anybody listening to this, please hear this advice and give it to people or take it yourself. He said, figure out what you do for free because you love it so much. Then figure out how to make a living at it. And the really smartest part about all that is he said, that's all you got to do. Make a living. All you got to do is pay your bills. Being rich is is a waste of time. It doesn't change anything. All you want to do is make enough money to pay your bills doing something you love to do. And so I'd watch these westerns on black and white TV, you know, on westerns yeah. and gun smoke and stuff like that. And I'd think that's what I want to do right there. That's <laughs> and I never wavered. For I mean, to this day I'm seventy five, and you know what I do if I have a a free hour or something. During my day I'll sit down and i'll find old black and white gunsmokes on TV and watch them because that's that takes me right back to the the joy of 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 what I love to do sure what all actors love to do and then you went to Yale didn't you i did I went to yale I went to a prep school then I went to yale uh for the drama school and I was going to go i had a scholarship to central in london which is yeah many people would argue is the greatest acting school in the world. And, um, and I had myself all set to go there, but it was 1970 and it was the draft. Mm. And I, had to, I had a physical, I had to settle the question of the draft one way or another until, yeah. until I could leave the country. And by the time I had found out that I wasn't draftable, they, they gave me a four F cause I have a condition called Raynaud's phenomenon, which is, frankly just a pain in the butt it's the worst of it it's just a circulatory condition but it's one of the um, reasons that they don't want you know they they give you sure. that so by the time i settled that whole issue back in 1970 i'd missed my chance to go to central but i got into juilliard got into i got a scholarship there not too day. shabby Juilliard. no no it was great i was very lucky to to pivot yeah. successfully and uh Went to Juilliard for a few months and that was it. Under John Hausman, the great John Hausman. Amazing. He's and, a legend. Yeah, well, absolutely. And he was running the acting school there and um, and I through a series of lucky accidents and people I had met and stuff. I got some auditions and I went to them while I was at Juilliard thinking literally thinking, well, I don't know what I'm doing, so they'll throw me out of my ass in a minute. <laughs> but I, I may as well go find out what an audition is like. I didn't know. Right. And I got the parts. All these things I got. I got replacing Ken Howard in Child's Play. I got a movie with Shirley MacLaine called The Possession of Joel Delaney. Which I saw, loved it. Oh, good. And I said and I got Slaughterhouse Five, all oh, suddenly I got all these things. And I went to everyone at Juilliard, the teachers there. I remember they said uh they said, Don't take them. They said, stay and study. Uh, learn your craft and then you can you can do that stuff later. And I thought, what are you, crazy? These <laughs> are offers to do movies, for God's sakes. I never did get to do the Broadway show because I was doing these movies. And I went to John Houseman, mm-hmm. and said, what should I do? And he said, another wonderful quote, wonderful thing. He said, he said I think an actor should work when he can work and study when he can't. He said, so do these movies, I understand perfectly. And then afterwards, if you want, the doors open, come back. Well I never got back I just kept working sure I, <laughs> I ended up by the way doing I think it was two different shows I did with John Houseman as as an actor in them wow. it was so much fun to have studied with him and then find myself doing a lead with him doing a part in the thing you know yeah. like things he was in and uh I can't remember now there's another show but isn't that great advice work I when you it. can work study when you can
1: the possession of Joel Delaney was very interesting because it was before The Exorcist or any of those other films. Yeah. It predated right. all of that.
2: I um think, I think it's accurate to say that that was the movie that sort of awakened Shirley MacLaine into forms of mysticism and stuff, because that's really what it's about. Yes. It's about it a, 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 a cult or a religion called Espiritismo. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rican. Yeah. i Puerto Rican, so I know it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we had some strange experiences on that film that none of us could really explain. That that uh, were pretty scary, actually. I, I won't get into any detail, but it was it was <laughs> it was interesting. I did this film, and I'm playing the title lead, Joel Delaney, in the possession, playing opposite Shirley MacLaine, who was acting it but also producing it, and uh, and. It's really two parts. It's the part of her brother who's very confused and troubled. And then it's also the part of a dead murderer. Yeah. Either takes over Joel Delaney's spirit or Joel is schizophrenic. You never know the answer. Mm -hmm. But I remember playing that part and thinking, wow, this is a great way to start. If this is the first gig I get, think how great it's going to go from here. Tony, I'll tell you, that's the best part I've ever had in my whole life. The first <laughs> one was the best one I ever got. It, maybe up until the divide, it was the best part. You know? And I saw the divide last night, and we're
1: going to get to that because I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. Um, but you did a lot of other great films. I've got to mention them. The Lords oh, of Flatbush. I
2: absolutely love the Lords of Flatbush. It's 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 pretty good. It's it's uneven, and I think everybody involved would admit that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was working with sly stallone who at the time was unknown but sly was just breathtaking oh my god he's still he's one of the most brilliant people i've ever known in my life and he exceptional in every regard a brilliant brain people don't understand that sly changed so much i mean he we were shooting that film and um, at one point And we were always in character in that movie All all day long, you'd show up In wardrobe, because it was so low budget Yeah, The original budget was like 50 grand or something, it was just a home movie Almost, <laughs> and we'd show up In wardrobe, in character, so I showed up Nobody ever heard me On that set uh, Sound anything like Except the, you know Fucking A, uh, fucking, fucking A <laughs> And and so Sly was there, too, also always in character. And I just kind of assumed he was what he was playing in the movie. Yeah. After a couple of weeks, we were working, and he, he handed me this script, and he said, hey, I, I wrote this thing. I want you to read it, right? <laughs> I thought, oh, God, this is going to be painful, but I'll do it. <laughs> I took it home. It was a script about Edgar Allan Poe, and it is, to this date, still one of the three or four most incredible scripts i've ever read in my life really? he never he wrote it what he did was he wrote it for himself because actually if you look at him particularly back then when he was a young man he really looked very much like edgar Allan poe yeah, yeah you're edgar right Allan poe is a writer and he's a writer even though people don't think of him as a writer that he's mm-hmm. he's more a writer than anything else yeah um, and uh, and he but he 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 couldn't get it done, and of course nobody would ever accept him as Edgar Allan Poe. Right, they're wrong. They should, but they won't. And he knew that. He's so smart. So after a while, while we were shooting that film, I had a wonderful uh, manager who's gone now. She died young, and just broke everyone's heart that she died. Her name was Jane Oliver.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, at that point, and she'd helped me get started and and she was first my agent and then my manager so we're shooting the lords and she's my manager and i arranged for sly and she to me because i said this guy is phenomenal yeah he's an actor a writer he's written one of the best scripts i've ever read he he basically took over the lords of flatbush because he stood not because he wanted to do anything bad to anybody he was just so brilliant that Mm -hmm. everything he did was so much more interesting than anything any of the rest of us did you just got to go along with that you know you can't fight that kind of thing that kind of genius and uh so i put him together with jane oliver and he and jane oliver together he wrote rocky for himself what he did was he couldn't get a job yeah it's too unique if you think of sylvester stallone before he became famous yeah he was so odd and unique that they just couldn't cast him right right and so he wrote the perfect part for himself rocky he rocky. invented it mm-hmm. and he took and he and Janie engineered that whole thing into place in fact the third rocky was dedicated to her after she died wow and uh and I watched that whole thing take place I mean it was magical you know? he must have been like,
1: wow, look at him go.
2: <laughs> Incredible. And I said to Jane Oliver, after all that had happened and he was suddenly on top of the world and and we were all thrilled for him that that was happening. I mean, when he came out to California after the Lords, we all came to California to break in. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Winkler and Sly Stallone and I and Paul Mace, the fourth guy. Yep. Was, we all came out here to break in. Right. And uh, Sly drove this old Buick across the country with his wife, and infant baby, and he had so little money, he couldn't even afford a mechanic. I used to, I was an amateur mechanic. I would tune his Buick up for him to keep it running. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he had nothing. And they offered Sly, this is, of all the amazing things he's done, this is the most amazing to me and, and just admirable. They offered him at one point, I think it was $350,000 for that screenplay, if he'd give it to them and walk away. And, not oh, wow. stay. and this is a man who was not able to feed his family well. Yeah. He was broke. And he turned it down because he thought, that's my part. I won't, I won't let anybody else play it. And he pulled it off. God, what a, what he a knew. guy. He knew. So much admiration and- for it. Amazing, and he became huge.
1: And yeah, Henry Winkler, well, Henry Winkler became the Fonz. I mean, wow, that was big too. Yeah, Henry
2: went. Henry went in, and uh, we were auditioning together. We'd come out, actually flew out in the same plane together, and tried to break into Hollywood. And he was going out auditioning. And he told me he did the audition for Happy Days. What he did was Henry's version of Sly. <laughs> so in the Lords of Flatbush, Sly says a sound that he would say "hey" like this, and it oh. be kind of dangerous and scary. Yeah. But Henry would do it; it was "hey," and it was kind of <laughs> cool lovable, you know. And it. Henry Henry was auditioning for a part that was meager, minor in that project in Happy Days originally. Yeah, he was so good that he took over the the show. You know, he totally but, did. He, he came to me after he got that part. And he said, I think he says he didn't say that now, but I know he said this. He said to me, Hey, I got a gig. He said, I got something that's, you know, just something to do until something important comes along. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that, it. That was it. That was the important yeah. thing. You know, it's like, it's like the guys who did, um, Airbnb. A lot of people don't realize this, but they were two entrepreneurs living in San Francisco and they, uh, they were trying to figure out the great, the big idea, right? Mm-hmm. To get rich. Meanwhile, they were broke and they had no money and they had an apartment. So they decided they would get some air mattresses and rent space on their, on their floor, sleeping on an air mattress to people who had nowhere to sleep. Smart. And that was why they called it Airbnb. I love Airbnb. it. Airbnb. And they said, little did we know that was the big idea. You know, <laughs> you never know about this stuff.
1: You never know. I recently saw another one of your films called The Wild Party, which was didn't I mean, it was a, it, it didn't come out when it originally was made, but it came out later with you, Raquel Welsh, and James Coco. And it reminds me of the film Babylon, which came out last year oh, with yeah. Margot Robbie yeah. and yeah. Brad Pitt, because it's the 1920s. It's a silent yeah. movie star, big party and a huge
2: man. It's very similar. You're right. Very, very similar. similar. In, in and structure. and also similar in being a very flawed movie. Both of them are very flawed. Yeah. Uh, but that whole 20s, era, the whole twenties, when you got
1: that role, did you kind of have to do a little research about it? I mean, how did you
2: take on that role? Well, that role was supposed to be, even though it's in the side, you know, it's based on a on an epic poem by John McClare March yeah. called "The Party," and uh, and it's really about very loosely about fatty arbuckle and that whole scandal yeah. which you probably know about i don't know if people listening will know even who fatty Buckle, uh fatty arbuckle is anymore comedian famous but he but he a big scandal he was one of the biggest movie stars at the time big fat guy comedian yeah and uh and he had, there was this big scandal where a girl was killed mm-hmm. uh, and it's you know it's not worth going into what happened um not clear, I don't think to this day if he did it or somebody else did it. But in any case, it ruined his career. Yep. And, and so that character of Fatty Arbuckle is played by Jimmy Coco.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And Jimmy's mistress is played by Raquel Welsh. And I'm playing Errol Flynn, but slightly earlier, you know, an Errol like a Valentino kind of Errol Flynn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Silent
1: movies, but a matinee idol.
2: And so Maybe that was, John
1: Barrymore-ish. That That's a good one.
2: Yeah, although I think that the character I played was supposed to be not particularly a great actor as Barrymore. That's true, that's true. But, that's true. but rather just a matinee idol, a pretty face. I remember we started out shooting that film, and Raquel Welsh said to me at one point, and back then, you, you know, I've solved this problem. But back then, I was very pretty. <laughs> I wasn't handsome, I was pretty. And I didn't like it, but it, that's the way I looked, what can you do? You gotta you <laughs> you take what you get and you run as far with it as you can. And we started shooting that movie before we started shooting it, Rachel Walsh said to me, <laughs> She said, if you come off looking prettier in this movie than I am, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> because Perry,
1: you know what's funny? When I watched it, I said.
2: My God, those are the two most prettiest
1: people I've ever
2: seen on a screen. So back, back then, I was pretty. And, of course, that's what they wanted. It was James Ivory, Ishmael Merchant, two very fine filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, Ishmael is gone now, but James Ivory is still here. And, uh, and you know, they that's what they needed me to accomplish, was to look perfect, beautiful, elegant in my tux and all that stuff. So there wasn't much research necessary. I mean, I watched silent films and saw how those guys moved and acted. And sure, um, it wasn't so much uh, Valentino, of course, he was the biggest movie idol at the time, but more, more sort of um, Errol Flynn if he'd been, uh, um, if he'd started in The Silence, Douglas yeah. Fairbanks, you know, Douglas Fairbanks, yeah, yeah. right, of those characters, right. And it was a difficult film to shoot, because it, it wasn't very, uh, it was cha- pretty chaotic.
1: Well, on the DVD, I know um, the director talks a little bit about the chaos involved with the film. And it was shot in a beautiful location, Mission Inn, in
2: Riverside, yeah, which Mission I, it's on my to-go list, because it looks oh, beautiful. Oh, no, it's wonderful. I've never been. It's an old, old edifice back down in, uh, in Riverside.
1: Yeah, I want to go. Yeah, um, but it's a beautiful, it's a great, it's an interesting film, especially when you see Babylon. Kind yeah. of watch them together. Anybody out there listening? If you liked Babylon, watch The Wild Party because it's a little bit, it's it's similar in a way. What I liked about Babylon
2: was Margot Robbie. My she was God, great. she's such a courageous actress, and that's one of the most important things for an actor to be: is mm-hmm. courageous, willing to willing to fail, willing to make it. Uh, Lawrence Olivier once was quoted as saying the first responsibility of an actor is to make a fool of himself <laughs> and she was willing to do that she was just breathtakingly courageous unfortunately it's a it's a poor film i think i mean yeah. i that's my opinion um i'm sure others might disagree but i just think that film is uh filled with flaws but boy is she good you took
1: a lot of risks in your career. I mean, you worked on Andy Warhol's Bad, which I want to talk to you about Andy well, What was Andy Warhol, what was that whole thing like for
2: you? Oh, that was fascinating. It was like a trip to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Just amazing. I remember that uh, oh, so many things like I could talk for hours about doing that film, but uh, Andy Warhol was around. He wasn't directing it. His 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 protege, or whatever you want to call him, Jed Johnson, directed it. Right. So, um his sort of boyfriend-ish. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. yeah. But Jed, Jed was directing. But Andy was. um His goal was to make a a mainstream Hollywood movie. So he got Carol Baby Doll Baker, Beautiful yeah. actress, great actress, terrific lady. Uh, he she, he got Susan Terrell, who's gone now, I think, but yeah, but, uh, Academy Award winning from Fat City. Gosh, you know, and then Perry, and I think he hired me. It was Perry Mandingo King, because I, I think Mandingo was. <laughs> Mandingo. That was another movie. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so Andy, Andy said, I said to him one day, I said, what, is, what are you, why are we making this movie? What, is, what's the movie you're, you want to make? What, what's the, the, your description of this movie? And he said, I wanted to make a movie about evil women and incompetent men that was his description okay it's interesting but andy was fascinating for example andy's the back of andy's head yeah was was black right his hair was your black hair there. okay here and i said to him one day i said why don't you why don't you uh why don't you bleach the back of your head too andy the way you do the front and he said well because when i look in the mirror i can't see that part so i don't care <laughs> he's such an artist that's the kind of guy he was or we'd have lunch and he would often eat lunch with us and Andy had this now remember this is back in I don't know when it was the 70s sometime right yeah yeah, 74 before before electronics and stuff so he had this tiny little tape recorder this tiny little spy like reel to reel tape recorder and he also had this equally tiny little spy camera with film in it right Mm mm-hmm And he put the tape recorder in the middle of the lunch table where we were eating lunch, and he turned it on. And the whole time you're there with him and talking to him, he's clicking this little tiny baby camera, (laughs) clicking (laughs) pictures of you. And I said, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And his answer was fascinating. He said, I want every, I just want everybody to be as uncomfortable as I am. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) I mean, think about it. First of all, yes, it makes you uncomfortable if somebody's recording you and taking pictures of you. Yeah. But his his point was, I thought that was so. His level of self awareness was fascinating. That he knew himself. He knew he was uncomfortable in the presence of anybody. I think. Mm-hmm. Just he was very shy and very private, and yet he was so public in his yeah. life. And to make come to terms with that, he said he. He just tried to even the score, even the playing field by making everybody else uncomfortable. Back then, the 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 um, what they call it, the factory, his the factory. Yeah. You know. And back then, you know, before the days of of, of uh, security and stuff, I would walk from where I was living and I'd walk in a back door of the factory to go to work. Mm-hmm. And you know, you could just open the door and walk in back then. And I walked in one day and I saw Andy was sitting in front of. A whole bunch of still wet silk screens of various people oh, wow. portraits yeah those he was selling those things at like this is back in the 70s he was selling at like 150 grand a pop right yeah and he had a bunch of them there they would have been silk screen and to make those things all andy would do is take a polaroid of you remember the old polaroids where they yes i remember the photograph would shoot out the front right yeah so I'd take a Polaroid, then he'd send it out. And then they would silkscreen that Polaroid onto a canvas. And then while it was still wet, he would take his index finger and write on the bottom in the wet paint, Andy Warhol. Amazing. Did and he ever do a good. portrait
1: of you, Perry?
2: No, no. He never because did a I wasn't going to pay 150 grand for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a portrait of me. But anyhow... <laughs> He did really? give me one. He gave me one of his Indians, you know, those Oh he Indians. did. Oh wow. Yeah, but unfortunately, like an idiot, I gave it to somebody that turned out to be a very false friend. And oh. somebody who loved Andy Warhol's work and I thought it was appropriate to give it to him. And I shouldn't have done it, but it happened. But anyway, um, so he's signing these, and I said, Andy, why are you on your knees there signing these? Stilk screens with your name like that, and he said, "Well, the people who, who commissioned this want to know that it's been done by the hand of Andy Warhol." And, and so there it is, using his finger in the wet paint. Yeah, <laughs> I just think more than anything, Andy was a brilliant businessman, just brilliant. Mm-hmm. More than an artist, I think he was a businessman, and he had stacks of paintings back there. His and pain. marketing, a marketing. He was he was brilliant. Well, he in marketing. had these of paintings and he knew if he just put them out there when he painted them, he yeah. would devalue all of his art. So he he'd stick them, he'd put them out in the in the in the market right when they were most valuable. Yeah. Very smart guy. But at the end of that shoot, the last day of shooting, and again, that was another very difficult movie to make. And at the end of that shoot, we were doing a scene, and I said to Jed, Jed, who's very sadly uh died on that you remember the plane that flew off from JFK and blew up over the Atlantic yes I do I remember that Mm -hmm. many years ago yeah Jed was on that plane so he died on that plane but um I said to Jed last day of shooting last scene I think and he and he we were disagreeing about how to play something and I said rhetorically I said Jed come on this is a comedy right And of course it was a comedy. We all knew it was a comedy. Right. Said, Jed, this is a comedy. And I was saying, so therefore... And he said, what? I said, this is a comedy. And he said, it's not a comedy. This is a drama. And I thought, oh my God, all of a sudden... I mean, the whole movie, I had been (laughs) in a whole different movie than he was directing. (laughs) And all through the shoot. And I suddenly realized where I was in the world of Andy Warhol Mm -hmm. up was down. Pretty is ugly. Funny is sad. Sad is funny. Everything's, it's through the looking glass. Yeah. I suddenly understood the last day. I finally understood that world and therefore how to fit into it. But the movie was over. It was too late. Yeah. But it's so interesting to me that, that, uh, Oh God, that, that, that brings back a lot of memories of, uh, it was very exciting doing it. But we, we fought a lot. Carol Baker, Susan Terrell, and I were working on that film, and Susan was just so good in that film. Every day, Carol and I would think, Oh my god, she understands this so well. But we were lost. Carol and I agreed, we were lost. We thought we were doing a <laughs> terrible job. We were. I was. I was no good in that film. And so finally we went, excuse me, we went to Susan Terrell. And we said, we said, you seem to know what you're doing so well. And you're doing such a good job and we're lost. Can you please help us? And Susan Terrell, <laughs> who's, who who was extremely smart, but crazy, I don't <laughs> think that's unfair to her to just say she was crazy. What? <laughs> crazy. And she said this to us. She said, well, you both made a terrible mistake. She said, yeah. you read the script. Now, see, I've never read this script. I have no idea what's going on. And that's the right way to make an Andy Warhol movie. And she was exactly right. Carolyn and I were both trying to do what we've been trained to do. Give a a logical performance beginning at A and ending at Z with an arc to the character and and, uh, crises and moments of denouement and all that stuff that we've been academically trained to apply as an actor. Susan was had no idea what any scene was about. She didn't know where what had happened before. She had no idea what happened afterwards. She was right. That was a way to do that movie. But it was too late for Carol. I mean, we read the script. We couldn't go backwards. We couldn't unknow the script, you know? Yeah, it was very interesting. Very interesting.
1: Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with the extraordinary Perry King. On the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed, my conversation with Perry continues as we discuss how he was brought in by George Lucas to audition for the role of Han Solo in Star Wars, what it was like starring on the hit 1980s TV detective series Riptide, and his memories of playing the role of Haley Armstrong on the hit Fox primetime soap Melrose Place. All that and more on the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed. This is your host,
0: Tony Miros. See you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Hollywood Obsessed. Make sure to visit our Facebook page, Hollywood Obsessed Podcast, where you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss a single episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in every other Monday for our next episode. That's a wrap.